30 separate times about every 10 weeks on this podcast over six years, I picked five stocks. I chose a theme that made sense to me at the time, sometimes sublime, sometimes silly. And then I thought to myself, what are the five best recommendations that I can come up with for stocks that fit that theme? Aiming, of course, always to beat the market, the S&P 500, because otherwise, why are we bothering? Then one year later, we review the picks, and then another year passes, the two-year review. Yep, two years later, we never forget. We, we hope you wouldn't also. We score everything transparently and accountably because we're fools. You should expect that of us, and I would say yourself too. And then the three-year review, which is going to be the most telling. And why is that? Well, first, because three years have passed since I picked the five stocks. We really can be smarter about what has happened and why and what we can learn with the greater passage of time. So that's the smarter part. But if I've done my job well, then we'll also be happier, we hope richer, too. Now, that three-year review is also important because most of the time we end the game right there. We're going to keep holding these stocks in real life, mind you. You should, too, if you own them. But if I kept reviewing all 30 of my samplers in years four, five, and six, etc., well, we wouldn't have time to do much else on this podcast. So 30 separate times I picked five stocks, what I've also called my five stock samplers, and we're going to review three of those samplers this week. Five stocks rolled up at random, five stocks that spark joy, and five stocks shrouded in mystery. Review them, we will, with my three analysts, guest stars Sanmit Deo, Asit Sharma, and Rick Munares. Only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. It's rare that I start a show already talking about next week's show, but I'm going to do that briefly this week. You know, a couple of years ago, Chris Hill joined me for Rule Breaker Investing, and we did, I think, one of my more memorable podcasts. Together, Chris and I did the day the market crashed. It was a simulation, kind of like Orson Welles' War of the Worlds radio broadcast, for those who know that history. But we were just having fun. It was, of course, made up. The market wasn't crashing that week, but we did a live-seeming podcast just to process what that would feel like and sound like for you, our dear listeners. And we've heard back many times over the years this is one that people have gone back to and that the market happened to go down 30 percentage points or so within a few months. Well, we didn't intend that. We weren't expecting that, but it was helpful in that regard. Well, Chris is going to come back and join me next week, and we're going to do something special. Again, I hope another tour de force. We're not exactly repeating what we did. Well, I'll just let you experience that next week, but really excited to have Chris and some guests joining us for a special edition of Rule Breaker Investing next week. All right, that's then. This is now. We're going to be looking over three five-stock samplers this week. I always enjoy these episodes. I hope you do too. It's our opportunity to see what happened to stocks that were picked one, two, and three years ago this week or so. And yep, we've got three different samplers. One dated one year, another two, and one will be sending off to Fulhalla after its three-year run, they are in order. Five stocks rolled up at random, five stocks that spark joy, and five stocks shrouded in mystery. And I'm about to get started with the first of those, the one that's one-year-old, five stocks rolled up at random. I don't really want to review that one, but we will be in a minute. But first, let me just speak about five-stock samplers and review Palooza episodes for new listeners. You know, from the earliest days at The Fool, we've always said it's so important not just to talk the talk, but to walk the walk. I mean that for me and for my brother Tom, when we first started The Motley Fool as a newsletter, we thought, you know, we could write as writers, we could write about stocks and write about our thoughts, but wouldn't it make more sense for us to pick stocks too, to walk the walk, as it were, instead of merely talking the talk? And so from our earliest days of The Fool, the fun of being in the game, skin in the game, accountability, the benefits to our learning, which I'll speak about in a sec, have always been so powerful. So talking the talk and walking the walk underlies so much of The Motley Fool's work. But of course, it's right in the heart of these five-stock samplers. And 
The second thing I want to say about walking the walk is if you're walking the walk, that's great. But you know what? You should also be scoring the walk. This is one of my cardinal themes on Rule Breaker Investing. It's one thing to pick a stock. It's an entirely different thing to score how that stock's doing, to score it against the market's average, and of course, more broadly, to score your portfolio, not just that stock, against the market average year in and year out. I think you'll get so much better, not just talking the talk and not just walking the walk, but scoring the walk. Because point number three, when you score, you learn. There's no substitute for the learnings that come from lived experience. And that goes for your winners and your losers. And we'll be talking about both of those this particular week on Rule Breaker Investing. But there's really no way to know that you're not doing it right unless you start seeing some negative feedback in the form of red numbers or poor performance. Nobody likes it. I sure don't. But as the person who I still think has picked more bad stocks than anyone else in Motley Fool history, I can tell you that it's been really important to me to learn from the mistakes that I've made. And of course, also, I would say even more importantly, to learn from what's working. And that's a forgotten art sometimes. A lot of people talk about the importance of learning lessons from what failed. I get it. But I love to learn lessons from what is working because that's surely what we want to do more of and figure out over the course of time. So walking the walk, but scoring and scoring because you learn. And I guess the last thing I want to say before we get started with this review of Palooza this is kind of a tip to any financial professional. I mean, that's what our analysts and advisors are at The Motley Fool. I know I've never really thought of myself this way, but I, yeah, I guess I'm a financial professional and that's what we are. And you're going to build trust with your clientele when you're talking the talk, walking the walk, scoring the walk, and learning from the score. I think any financial professional listening to me right now is highly encouraged if you're not already doing all of those. And I bet a lot of you are. If you're a fool, you probably are. But in my experience, a lot of people in the financial world are not necessarily going through all of those steps. But if you do, you're going to separate yourself from all the others because you're going to be building trust. And don't we need a little bit more of that in this world? All right. Well, as we are wont to do on this podcast, it's time to go back in time. And it wasn't so long ago, January 21st, 2021, the market was in a very different place than it is right now. In fact, the market has had some real undulations up and down since January 21st, 2021. And on that week's podcast, I picked five stocks rolled up at random. I'm about to invite my friend Sanmi Deo on to review this sampler. But let me say about the market that even though it's really been suffering in recent weeks and months, the S&P 500 is up 16.9%. We'll just call that an even 17 since January 21st of 2021. So that's the mechanical hair that all of our Greyhound stocks are chasing here. 17%. Take it all in all. That's a really wonderful overall year for the stock market. Now, it hasn't felt that for a lot of our stocks. And let's see how five stocks rolled up at random are doing. Sami Deo, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. Doing great. Thanks for having me again. Excellent. Thank you. You and I were just talking off the air about the Texas basketball team and a, a big win over Kansas this week. And uh, the burnt orange, I know that football counts for more in your home state of Texas, but it's nice to know that there's some basketball excitement these days around Austin. Yeah, for sure. And the coach uh, is really trying to get that fan engagement with uh, with basketball. He knows that it's it's a tough road when you have such a entrenched football fan base but he's trying he's doing his best to get get them excited for basketball as well especially with the new arena coming next year well that is exciting and sports are exciting and something you and i enjoy but maybe we should just return back to the stock market which is what centers us and let's talk about five stocks rolled up at random now no requirement on your part son me to go back and re-listen to that podcast from a year ago but can you maybe briefly summarize why they were five stocks rolled up at random yeah, you know, I think I think this was this was fun. I I did re I did re-listen to it, and um, it was it was a cool way to do a five stock sampler. Usually, you have your samplers with themes, um, and this theme was really just random. So you randomly pick ten <laughs> stocks, and then you pick five from those. So it's a it's an interesting way to play the the five stock sampler game, and we'll see how the results turned out for the year <laughs> and uh, going forward as well. But um, 
Exactly. But the one thing I love about these samplers is that they're they're they they are samples. So you know, many of the samples have done well just from picking themes and 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 picking stocks from those from that big universe. So they're all kind of all almost random to some extent. Well, choosing the theme definitely is not, and that's always been a fun thing for me to do over time. And then thinking of what stocks best exhibit that theme always gets you, as you're saying, Samit, into a smaller group. I've only ever done five stocks at a time, and certainly a portfolio is not about five stocks. But with that said, the five stocks that I rolled up at random in alphabetical order are Apple, Atlassian, Solar Edge Technologies, Starbucks, and Teladoc. Again, they are competing against an S&P 500 up 17%. Let's start, as we do traditionally, with the worst performer. And wow, it's been a hard, hard year for Teladoc. It was at $246.74 about a year ago. Today, it's below 70. The stock, Samit, is down 72 percentage points in its first year as part of this sampler. Uh, a previously big winner for Motley Fool Rule Breakers, combining two companies, well, let's talk about that a little bit. What has happened? What is the number one reason in your mind that Teladoc has lost three quarters or so of its value in the past year? Well, I think the if I could choose just a short phrase, I would say pandemic pull forward. Um, you know, the pandemic was was rough for all of us in in general for many reasons, but for many businesses, it actually pulled forward a lot of revenues and their business uh, trends. Um, while that was good in 2020 for their businesses, meeting those expectations and, 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 and continuing that growth and continue those trends in the later years in 2021 has proved very challenging for, for some of our names, and one specifically Teladoc, which if the listeners aren't aware of yet, um, it's a virtual healthcare services company for, for on a B2B basis, you know, covering various clinical conditions and offering telehealth for um, chronic condition management, expert medical services, behavioral health, um, it serves health employers, health plans, hospitals, and insurance companies um, through brands such as Teladoc, Livongo, BetterHelp, um, and et cetera. Mm. You know, they're a global leader in this virtual care space. They have over, over 12,000 clients, 51.5 million U.S. paid members, and 10.5 million medical visits in 2020. Now, with those kinds of numbers, you would think, why, why oh, why is this, is this stock down like it yeah, is? Yeah, this I mean, is the age of telemedicine, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's, that was my thinking anyway. And it felt like that's what was happening during this pandemic. Yeah, you know, and I think one of the themes I've noticed with some of these pandemic winners is it create it, it brought forward trends that were already in 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 process, but because of the shutdowns and the extreme nature of the the way we lived um, during the pandemic, those trends were accelerated. We 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 couldn't go see the doctor. We couldn't take care of our health the way we would have. So we looked at companies like Teladoc to provide those services that we couldn't do in person. So seeing our doctor when we need to virtually, um, getting mental health care when we needed it virtually. Those are things that that really drove the business. And while that drove the business, you know, now they've kind of come off that high, so to speak, and revenues are slowing down, although they were at a rapid clip over the past four quarters of over 100%. Hmm. Um, slowing down, disappointment with membership revenue growth. One analyst had estimated only 1% to 5% year-over-year membership growth from 2021 to 2024 going forward. So uh, the market really thinks that it's, this pull-forward is not sustainable post-COVID. And you know because of the euphoria, the stock had gotten overvalued and expectations had run run high. So now they're kind of playing catch-up with, with expectations in terms of revenue, membership growth, and, and all and all those things, and and also another theme that's kind of been particular for them is competition. You know, the big elephant in the room of Amazon with their Amazon Care, which they announced today, is going going uh, is being rolled out v- broadly. Walmart, GoodRx, lots of companies are getting into the space, so that competition mm-hmm. has also been an overhang on the stock. Well said, and yeah, as we speak, and we are recording the afternoon of Tuesday, February 8th, Teladoc is down another 7% today, and I'm assuming that is in sympathy, well, actually empathy maybe for shareholders of that Amazon announcement. Well, that's Teladoc, and again, this is a company that had a $40 billion market cap within the last year, down to an 11 or $12 billion market cap. This is not the only 
so-called pandemic stock that is taking it seriously on the chin, Peloton, but that's for another five-stock sampler or another day. There are other examples, but I know you feel the same way I do, but I feel it incumbent upon us to say, Samit, to all of our listeners, that we're we're in it for the long term with these companies. So it's very frustrating to watch uh, some of our rule breaker stocks get cut in half or more. I've seen it happen many times before. I like to stay in there when the tailwinds behind companies and their solutions are in place. And I do believe telemedicine is a wind that's going to keep blowing in our back and keeping our boats moving forward, even though, wow, we faced a huge headwind here in 2021. Well, let's move from the worst performer now, Sunmeet, to the best performer. And while it's nice to see the best performers up, I'm sorry to say it's not nearly as up as Teladoc is down. So the number one performer for this five-stock sampler so far, Atlassian up 36%. That's about 19 percentage points over the market. What's been happening for this Australian software company? Yeah, so um, Atlassian, for those uh, who aren't familiar, it's a $79 billion market cap company currently that makes workflow management, collaboration, agile, and organizational software products such as Jira and Trello. Trello is something we use here at The Motley Fool, actually, for project collaboration. Um, It's used by 83% of Fortune 500 companies, has 10 million monthly active users, and over 180,000 customers in over 190 countries. So... Solid company, solid um, software company. You know this. This is just a case of a, a strong revenue growing company. They've averaged over thirty five percent durable and consistent revenue growth over the past um, past year, and as well as in, in even looking back past that, you know they've had rapid subscription growth, uh, revenue growth of over fifty percent in the past few quarters. They have kind of a differentiated go-to-market with like a low price, high value product strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, they're growing across users, new use cases, and products. And one of the things with software companies and these SaaS companies that you may not think is very highly free cash flow positive. Their free cash flow margins have improved to about thirty-five percent in fiscal twenty nineteen. That's about four hundred million free cash flow, and it's 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 said that they could reach a billion in free cash flow in, in fiscal twenty three. So. They're also benefiting from one of the, the best cloud transitions in the software industry. Many of these software companies have kind of transitioned from like on-premise desktop or or software um, that you have to pick up and use for, to cloud software um, that's high margin, high subscription um, based software. And then another great thing that I like to look at sometimes is they have a very w- strong workplace culture as indicated on Glassdoor and Comparably, which is another site I like to use. So it's overall just executing very well. That, And I think that's really the reason it's been doing so well as a stock. And it has been a long-term winner for many fools and a, a, a great rule breaker pick. I'm glad to know it's up 37 ish percent over this last year but it's not going to be enough to have this sampler after one year rolled up at random beating the market let's just talk about a few of these other companies on meet now let's go to two s companies very different businesses solar edge technologies um, kind of a, a solar power company powering the solar revolution and then starbucks and i'm curious i mean i know a lot of our motley fool employees don't come from wall street but you do have a past having come from Wall Street. And of the two companies, Solar Edge and Starbucks, which was more the kind of company that you've studied over the course of your career? Actually, the the, the one I study more is Starbucks. I worked at a growth, large cap growth firm. And so as, as, a, as part of working there, Starbucks was one of the staple growth names um, in our portfolio and one that is also easy to understand. You can just Go to a Starbucks, pick up the coffee, see the trends, see see the businesses, and and kind of get a good grasp of of the company. And you know, Starbucks, I gotta say, is is what a what a rough road over the past couple of years for a company that's especially restaurant companies like mm. Starbucks, where having to deal with shutdowns, reopenings, very uneven growth, uh, and reopening across geographies with the U.S operating differently than markets like China where Starbucks is in or other places internationally where reopening might be slower or, you know, the virus has been kind of popping in and out all over the the world at different places and spiking at different places. And for Starbucks, that's 
been a huge challenge. And so they're, they're, they're getting hit on that demand side when you have to close stores, but then they're also getting hit on the, the, the cost side when you have, you know, labor shortages and, and wage inflation and, and coffee prices have actually gone up as well. So mm. it's been a rough road to navigate for Starbucks. And I will point out that Starbucks is down 10% over this last year. So both Solar Edge and Starbucks are underwater, unfortunately. Solar Edge down 17%, Starbucks down 10%. So I introduced these two S companies together because they're both, I'm not going to say sucking, but they're both, losing. <laughs> they're both losing to the market. And you're right. I mean, what a hard business it's been to run for Starbucks the last couple of years. What about Solar Edge? So Solar Edge makes the um, uh, DC optimized inverter systems for solar photovoltaic installations worldwide, and and I can see why this is a great rule breaker because it's it's playing off the 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 long term tailwind of of solar energy, electric electric energy, um, and they've been kind of hit with with you know supply chain chip shortage issues kind of been an overhang for the stock. Um, some people think it's a it's transient and it has um, upside once that's kind of been alleviated. So it's so its revenues have been kind of choppy. It's started to come back in the past couple quarters back to about 40% plus. Um, and they're positioned well though because the the residential solar um, market is 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 set to to grow, forecasted to grow quite well in in the next few years. Um, so that's a kind of a place where they play um, very well. And Solar Edge is also a duopoly of sorts with another company called Enphase. So, you know, they have a, a strong foothold in this market. And um, it's, it's they they have been, um, had, I mean, even throughout this, they've had strong solar revenue across segments and geographies. Um, the commercial segment has started to turn um, and indicating that businesses are spending after the downturn to COVID. So they're kind of in that recovery phase. And and I think recently too, you, the White House confirmed kind of extension of solar tariffs play, put in place by Trump during Trump's administration. So so some of these governmental and and, sol- and energy credit situations also play a part in, in, in Solar Edge's uh, business. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, this stock touched a high of around 370 in November, right around Thanksgiving. And now here we are in early 2022, we find ourselves well down from 370 down to about 245. So uh, again, a company that we've held for a long time. This is a company with a $12 billion market cap today. As you mentioned, they are an Israeli company. Enphase is a US company. And yes, they are kind of a duopoly, as you mentioned. An interesting company. We're going to keep holding it and hope it performs better over the next two years. Let's close real quick, Samit, with, well, maybe the best known of all five of these companies, even including Starbucks, and and that would be Apple. I am happy to say that Apple is a winner over the last year. The stock is up 33%. Again, the market up about 17 So Apple is dragging five stocks rolled up at random upward. It's not going to get high enough, but give us a word about Apple. I think Apple is just, you know, robust demand for their products, iPhones, Macs, wearables, strength in their services businesses with their TV service. Um, they're just that just continues to drive revenue and earnings, even despite supply chain issues, which they too are not immune to. But but they've done a very good job of navigating those. Um, they have reported that they're 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 seeing. Uh, some relief coming in the first half of, of, of 2022. So there's always that that excitement of talk of an Apple car, um, or if not even an Apple <laughs> car, just just the, their more engagement within the electric vehicle segment. However, they hmm. decide to to kind of take part in that. Um, and then there's also also always the um, Apple will buy you kind of kind of theme coming up with with other companies. So um, because of the cash um, that they generate and have on their balance sheet. So just executing phenomenally like they they really do. They they have very few quarters that that disappoint. I, I'm not does any company have more cash on its balance sheet than Apple? I don't know. I the only one I could guess is maybe Google, but I don't think even Google has as much as Apple or Berkshire Hathaway. And why even pick NITs here? These are companies that (laughs) have on their balance sheets uh, cash that exceeds the GDP of some sovereign nations around the world today. So this is a really important, relevant company. Apple Plus, a lot of people watching Ted Lasso last couple of years waiting for season three. So it's a reminder, 
Just got another pair of AirPods Pro in the mail today, having slightly lost one of my AirPods Pro the other day. So it's a reminder of how relevant this company is. The devices that we're using, the entertainment we're consuming, Apple is such a big part of music as well. It's an amazing company. I'm glad it's part of five stocks rolled up at random. But now it's time to account for where we are. The stock market up 17% over the first year for this podcast. I regret to say that this group is presently down 6%. I'm looking at you, Teladoc, because you're bringing <laughs> everybody else down. But if, if I'd never picked Teladoc, we'd be up. But so far, anyway, this is one of my losing five-stock samplers. I guess the good news, Sunmeet, is one year does not a season make. Is that fair? Absolutely. These are three years, three-year samplers. We still have two years to go. Lot, lots can happen in those two years for these companies. Well, thank you very much. And each one of these is such a relevant, interesting company to follow on its own. I mean, Teladoc is, despite its underperformance, it's a fascinating company and doing really important things in this world. So it'll be fun to see how five stocks rolled up at random play out. You know, I love dice and I love randomizing and I don't want them to have a bad reputation. So <laughs> I need this sampler to do better than it's done in years two and three. In the meantime, Sami Dale, thank you so much for joining us again on Rule Breaker Investing. Full on, my friend. All right. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, from January 2021, we go back one year. This is pre-pandemic, my friends. Well, for most of us in the world. Way back music machine, Rick Engdahl. The date was January 22nd, 2020, and it was five stocks that spark joy. And what I remember now, two years later, is that I was, it was a peon to Marie Kondo, Marcon. She had a lot of fans back then. She still has a lot of fans today. The woman who teaches us how to organize our homes, how to simplify our lives. I started reading her book, in fact, and though I've not finished it, her first insight is so profound. She's like, you know, we all expect our kids to pick up after themselves. We say stuff to them like, clean up your room, honey. But we never are taught exactly how to clean things up. And in most cases, Marie Kondo has said, that's because parents themselves don't exactly know how to do it right. They were never taught themselves. And this has been passed down through the generations. So Marcon is here to help us simplify our closets. Those are both the tangible and intangible closets in our homes and in our minds. And yeah, the big phrase that I remember, Asit Sharma, as I get to welcome you in now, the big phrase that I remember from her is you pick that old sweater up in your closet and you look at it and you ask yourself, does this spark joy for me? And if it doesn't, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to discard it, David, if it doesn't spark joy. <laughs> exactly. And that's going to simplify our lives a lot if we take that mentality. So five stocks that spark joy, Asit, and I'm going to give the stock names now, Amazon, Apple, Etsy, Tesla, and Walt Disney, all five of those I was picking at the time because I think Marie Kondo's insights into how to live better can actually help us invest better. And we're going to find out whether these stocks and their performance are going to uh, back me up on that point. But first, Asit, great to have you back to Rule Breaker Investing. David, thanks for having me back. Really excited to talk about this uh, these stocks in context of Marie Kondo. It seems like every time I've encountered any kind of Japanese thinking, there's always a big revelation, whether it's continuous improvement uh, mm. or the Kanban method of production, which is essentially using flags to, to show one process is done and another can start. The Japanese have a way of approaching the world that uh, lifts you out of your own sphere and plunks you down in another one. And, and this certainly is that for me. Wow, that is really well put. And thank you. And you're reminding me, I need to delve further into Japanese culture. So thank you for that reminder, Asit. Let's start with the worst performer. Good news. There's only one stock that's down in this group of five, and it's losing to the market by 37 percentage points. So a couple numbers here. The stock market over the last two years is up 36%. Therefore, Walt Disney, ticker symbol DIS, it's down 37 percentage points to the market. That means it's down 1% overall versus the market's plus 36. With Samit earlier, I think I said Apple might be the best-known company in the world. It definitely has more cash, but maybe Disney is even better known worldwide than Apple. But then again, why draw these kinds of distinctions? This is a big brand and a big business operating across many different industries. 
It's underperforming. I said, in your mind, for what reason over the last two years is Disney 37 percentage points behind the S&P 500? David, I think the factor that drove their underperformance uh, isn't something that's uh, difficult to figure out for, for many of us. Those theme parks got hit during COVID. So you picked this basket in January of 2020. I remember on the Ides of March, on March 15th of that year, trying to go to a play out in the real world and, and the, learning that the play was canceled. We had to turn back, and that was mm. the beginning of this COVID experience for me. But extrapolate this to Disney, which has such a big component with its theme parks. Investors have necessarily been cautious about this company. You know, I took a look at both the companies I'm going to speak about through this Marie Kondo lens, and I wanted to know what is speaking to management? What is sparking joy in uh, management's <laughs> eyes? And what might they be trying to discard? So let me take a stab at this. I actually want to quote from the last conference call that Disney had. This is from CEO Bob Chapek. Now, of course, we're recording just before the next quarter of earnings is going to be released, David. So this, for anyone who's tuning in, this is probably not the most recent quarter by the mm. time you're listening. He said, telling the world's most original and enduring stories, maximizing the synergy of our unique ecosystem to deepen customers' connection to our characters and our stories, and using the power of our far-reaching platforms and new technologies to give consumers the best entertainment experience possible. This is the way Disney describes what sparks joy from them. And I, I believe that. There's a lot of corporate speak in that. But I think when you look at how quickly they've been able to get into the streaming market with Disney+, Plus, ESPN+, Plus, and Hulu, and create this gargantuan uh, tribe of listeners, I think at the last count, Disney Plus had 118 million subscribers. You can see that they're funneling that joy, the stories that they've been telling for decades into this new medium that the next generation of consumers is going to watch and, and keep watching. So that obviously shows you the forward potential of the company, where its heart lies. I'm going to go out on a limb here <laughs> and, and try to isolate what isn't sparking joy as much. I think that actually is the theme parks, not because those aren't wonderful expressions of Walt Disney's original love for narrative and his love for having experiences. I think that it's more a difficult part of the business as time goes on. Of course, it's got a much smaller margin. They are struggling to recover from COVID. You know, as the last few weeks have evolved, I note that. Bob Chapek is under fire because Disney fans are furious that lines have become very long. Ticket prices are soaring. This is a hard problem, and it would be a hard problem for any management team. Right now, they're not feeling the joy on those theme parks. But I will say, even though, if you look at these numbers, the Disney part of the business, the Disney theme parks part of the business, while being only 25% of revenue and even less in operating profit, about 6%, Long-term, it is something that's going to spark joy again. I think fast forward a few years past COVID, and we've got a few years left in this basket, I think that component comes back and that the whole picture and beauty of this business model becomes apparent to investors. Well, and we do have one year left in this basket, so we're two in out of three. So we do have another year for the world to, I don't know, find its new normal and have more action around Disney theme parks. But you're speaking as well to streaming. Austin, and looking over this basket, this five-stock sampler, five stocks that spark joy, three of these companies are among the most prominent entertainment companies when we think about streaming. Amazon, of course, with Prime Video, Apple with Apple Plus, and Disney, of course, with Disney Plus. So part of what sparks joy for a lot of us are those stories. And ultimately, when you look at these five companies, we're about to talk about the big winner next, but all five of these really have great brands. I mean, certainly Etsy is not nearly as well known as the other four, but let's now shift from Disney, the biggest underperformer, to the biggest outperformer, and that would be Tesla. And while a lot of people for a long time have viewed Tesla as unsustainably premium priced, and maybe it even still is today, often that's been true, Asset, of the rule breakers over the course of time. They're perceived to be overvalued. People don't buy the stocks. But 
I think part of the reason that happens is because they have great brands and brands aren't really counted anywhere on the financial statements for the most part, unless we're talking about goodwill, but that's an obscure thing we're not going to talk about right now. Brands are often overlooked, I think, both by Wall Street analysts, but also the computer algorithms that drive a lot of the trading. And I think that's part of the magic for a company like Tesla. So Tesla was at $114 a share two years ago. It's now over 900 This stock is an eight-bagger for this five-stock sampler. I myself have bought at least one new Tesla since picking this five-stock sampler two years ago. So it sparked some joy for me. Asset, this stock is up 674 percentage points over the market averages. Would you have believed that two years ago? David, it's been a long evolution for me to understand the power of great brands. I am a believer now. Uh, have been talking about this principle probably for the last year uh, on Industry Focus with Emily Flippin. You can't underestimate what a brand can mean in the consumer's mind. We can be skeptical about Tesla's ability to produce its cars, its entry into new markets, its competition. If we don't understand what the consumer wants, we could be way off base. And that's been the case here. I want to point out one more thing about Tesla, which I think is uh, more recently supporting its success in addition to its great brand. And that is the ability of Elon Musk and this management team to go full Marie Kondo and figure out what is speaking to their heart and discarding the other things. Sort of counterintuitive. If you look at Tesla's strategy over the last two years, while they are working on a bunch of new models, they haven't been hyper-focused on that. In fact, that's secondary. What is sparking joy for Tesla, for Elon Musk, is scaling output. He mentioned this in the company's last earnings call back in January. I thought it was fascinating. He said a lot of people don't understand this point. If we had spent our focus during COVID with supply chain shortages, inability to get the chips in that we wanted on trying to introduce new models, that would have been a really complex business proposition. Instead, we just focused on scaling our output because you and I, David, both know that demand is there. People want that brand. By doing that, they were able to increase their volumes by 90% year over year. They were able to produce a tremendous amount of operating cash flow, a tremendous amount of profit. Um, I believe in the last quarter, if I'm not mistaken, they had about uh, $2.8 billion of operating cash flow that they generated. Mm. And as Musk pointed out, most automakers went backwards last year and during COVID. They weren't able to meet demand. So the ability of a management team to channel that inner Marie Kondo and focus on what's sparking joy, focus on what's important is a sign of a winning company. So these two elements together, they explain this fantastic stock price movement to me. Now, of course, we can't predict the future. There's still some time left in this basket, but I wouldn't bet against this company over the long term. Well, and speaking of the long term, that's how long we have held this stock. First picked it in Motley Fool Rule Breakers, November 2011. So we're now in our 11th year of just buying and holding Tesla. We have been well, I'm just going to say it, rewarded beyond my wildest dreams, uh, the performance of this company. And often it's forgotten that from 2014 to 2019, ticker symbol TSLA, check it, went sideways. As the market continued to rise inexorably, a strong bull market in the teens, 2014, 15, 16, 78, Tesla went sideways. And it just was within the last three years that the stock truly has exploded. And while it's been volatile, I mean, the stock is already down from recent highs like a lot of others. It's it's had about 20% of its value chopped in just the last month or so. Nevertheless, we're so far above where we started. And I think it's a company that does spark joy. I think from day one, people have said if Apple made a car, it would be Tesla. Tesla early days had that understanding of design, but also the fun. Elon Musk is a crazy man, mostly in a good way, I think. And I think a lot of us have benefited mightily because of all of his exertions and his company's efforts. It is still one of my favorite consumer products of all time. It is by far the best car I've ever driven. And it's amazing to think that Tesla remains asset at the forefront of the electric revolution. Seems like everybody else is announcing they've got their electric car coming too, but nobody's anywhere close to Tesla in terms of building out the network of chargers 
or all of the miles logged, which helps contribute to the AI for, I don't know, at some point, autonomous driving might actually work and Tesla might actually bring it, but they really have a huge advantage. It's amazing what you can achieve when you set audacious goals and work backward. Beautifully said. And succinctly said, let's stay succinct about these other three. But if there's any one of the remaining three stocks that you'd like to speak to, I said, I learned so much from you. I will point out two of the others, Apple and Etsy, have both more than doubled. And Amazon itself is up 70%. So again, with the stock market up 36 percentage points, this has been an absolute home run of a five-stock sampler. I'll just give the numbers right now. Overall, the market's up 36 percentage points. These stocks average a gain of plus 216 percentage points, so we're 180 per stock above the market. Of course, Tesla pulling them all up together, but three of these stocks have more than doubled. So between Amazon, Apple, and Etsy, which one do you want to pick up, look at it, and ask, does it spark joy for you, Asit Sharma? Uh, you're asking me to pick my favorite child, David, and I happen to have three <laughs> children. So. <laughs> but let, let's do this. Let's go with Etsy uh, to keep within this theme. I remember sort of rubbing my hands together when you first picked, picked this basket, thinking, oh, man, this, this basket is going to outperform, and outperform it has. But to, to, to choose one, I love that Etsy's management team talks about a fun and inspiring and engaging experience on their platform almost every conference call. That's so mm. important. You know, the intangibles are what make a company perform. It's the people you hire. It's the goals you set. It's the attention to the small things. I really love how Etsy is so focused on making its platform fun for the people who want its crafty artisan type goods, which I'm an avid buyer. Um, I seem to remember you saying that you hadn't, uh, or maybe when I was reviewing your transcript from the, the pot podcast, that you hadn't bought from Etsy at that point in time. And I'm, I was cu I'm curious, have you become an Etsy member since then? I'm sorry to say I still have not. And there are a lot of reasons I might, in particular as a geeky board gamer, one of the things that I like, this is a real sidelight of Etsy, but there are a lot of people who take the components of a game, let's just pick Monopoly as a generic game everybody knows, and bling them out. Like, have much more interesting-looking dice that you roll or replace that little metallic poodle with something else. You know, there are a lot of opportunities uh, that craftsmen have to take well-known games and develop much more interesting or beautiful components, and you just kind of put those in your box instead. Kick out the old. So put in wood for plastic, for example. That's happening thanks to Etsy. So I probably should have asked it, but thank you for remembering that about me. I still haven't bought from Etsy as a consumer. Well, I'm guessing within the next year or two, you will because they have this ability to help you find the things that are going to spark joy. Whatever your interests are, they do it very well. They pour a lot of money into the technology to make it easy to find those things. And I think these are the intangibles behind numbers like we've seen recently where they're growing their total platform volume by double digits. It's now over, I think, three billion bucks of total platform volume in the last quarter. They're becoming quite a big company from this little upstart that challenged Amazon and its uh, own world of handmade goods. I think that Etsy is the one for me that is most Marie Kondo-like in this regard. I love it. And you know what else I love? I love that we're talking about this in early February with the stock around 140. Again, this has been a wonderful performer. It is up 181% from two years ago. But have you looked at the stock recently, Asad, and everybody listening to us right now? This stock was over 300 Thanksgiving week. It's at 140 right now, two months later. This feels like a sale. A sale is happening not just on the Etsy platform, but maybe on the stock market. Uh, a lot of longtime listeners are smiling because they know Etsy was the example we used for the Market Cap Game Show for years. Matt Argersinger always kept overestimating it. And I was always saying, no, it's a smaller market cap than that, which means, Matt, you should be a buyer. And indeed, a lot of us have been very well rewarded. But it is amazing to me, Austin. We've seen this, of course, with many rule breaker stocks in just the last couple of months. This stock has been cut in half in just two months. It makes you wonder um, how long one should wait on the sidelines. I'm an Etsy shareholder and uh, hope to pick up some more shares in the near future. I'm not saying that 
because you brought up that the the fact that the stock was cut in half. But when I looked through my list of holdings, it popped out. Now, I invest in many growth names, so yeah, I've taken a beating among many areas in my portfolio. But this is one stock again that will feel good to add to my holdings. And I think when I fast forward a year or two from now, I'll feel even better. Thank you for that. And that fast forwarding is important. The only reason it makes sense to fast forward is if you're still holding the stock. Otherwise, you fast forward into nothingness. So it's a reminder, Asit, and everybody listening, that it's about holding. That's really most of the work of investing, that that buy discipline I've tried to exert up front, and that sell discipline that I kind of ignore relative to most of the rest of the world. In between those two points are hold, hold, hold. And Etsy has well rewarded us for these two years, and yet you've been whacked as an Etsy shareholder just over the last couple of months. And you have to be able to enjoy all of that and see the whole journey, I think, to be a successful investor. Well, we don't exactly know what the next year will hold, but one thing's, I think, almost for sure, this five-stock sampler is going to retire to full Halla next year as a market beater. Again, 180 percentage point lead over the market after just two years of volatile trading. So we'll keep our fingers crossed. And with Marie Kondo, we'll hope to pick these five stocks up a year from now, Asset, and hope they still spark joy. Thank you, my friend. So much fun, David. Thanks a bunch. All right. Well, from 2020, let's go back in time once more. And it's January of 2019. The date was January 23rd. The podcast that week was entitled Five Stocks Shrouded in Mystery. And for this group, I'd like to welcome back longtime Rule Breaker friend of mine, Rick Minares. Rick, welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, David. How's investing been treating you over the last year or so, Rick? It hasn't been great for a lot of my kinds of rule breaker stocks. You? Yeah, and again, yes, I've 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 been hit hard. Uh, I got lucky that I like moved into some REITs, just like thinking, hey, maybe a little income. Uh, now that I'm in my fifties and my wife is pondering early retirement in a year, or so I took a conservative approach with a part of my money. I, I'm still very into the aggressive growth stocks that we know and love, David. Uh, but that sort of helped out, uh, and I took a tiny little bit on crypto, which was great initially, and then uh, not so great lately. But again, a very small part. But so uh, last year wasn't too bad. My portfolio was actually up, uh, you know, in the low teens in the mid-teens, rather, rather uh, which I know is a lot better than a lot of people uh, with growth investors. But I definitely lost to the market like just about everybody I know. Well, coming right off of five stocks that spark joy and what we just talked about, Etsy, it's truly remarkable to me to think that Etsy is less than half what it was just two months ago and yet still up 100 percentage points plus over the last two years. That's kind of how investing in rule breakers has felt uh, in recent months. So, well, let's take a look at this group now. We're going to be sending this five-stock sampler off to Fulhawa at the end of this week's show because five stocks shrouded in mystery started on January 23rd, 2019, and three years later, well, that was a few weeks ago. So our numbers are locked. Uh, Friday, January 21st was the full three-year period, and those are the prices we'll be using. And this five-stock sampler, well, the S&P, Rick Minares, was up on average, 55% over the last five years. That's with an asterisk. We're going to explain a little bit more about that in a sec. Technically, the S&P 500 is up 66 percentage points over these past three years, but one of these companies got bought out very early, and so we're only averaging it for the time that it was still a live stock, and that's what brings down the overall average of the market to 55 percentage points over the last three years. But now I feel like I'm really getting into the weeds. Let's zoom back one level, Rick, and let's look at the worst performer among these five stocks shrouded in mystery. We'll explain the mystery a little later, but Rick, Carter's, the ticker symbol is CRI, baby clothes, multi-generations, up 13% the last three years. Bad news though, the S&P, it's not really bad news, was up 66%. And so Carter's is 53 percentage points behind the market. Rick, looking over the last three years, what in your mind is the number one reason why Carter's has underperformed? Yeah, and, and I, I just want to start by saying that up 13%, and this is the worst pick, is obviously going to be a very good uh, next 10, 15 minutes for us here talking about these stocks. But uh, yes, for, for Carter's, uh, again, I mean, this is the company behind Oshkosh, uh, Bigosh, and of course, Carter's. 
Uh, the, the, I think what really hurt them is that even before the pandemic, they weren't doing that well. So uh, their sales, the revenue net sales, basically in 2018, less than 2%, uh, 2019, less than 2%. And then the pandemic came. So revenue declined 14% in 2020. Mm. So this was a company that already had issues where it wasn't necessarily catching up to, uh, you know, let's say a, a Target or, 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 or Walmart that's selling a lot of kid clothes, a lot of generic stuff to put on your kid uh, as they grow up. And especially if you're a parent and you're cost conscious, you don't want to invest a lot of money into an outfit that only is going to fit them when they're really young for maybe a couple of months, uh, a year or two at most. So I think that sort of is what hurt Carter's and I think also, I mean, just the general scope of the pandemic, uh, I mean, I think it's fairly obvious that if you are, if your kid and your family and you're all hunkering down and sheltering in place, you don't necessarily want to get out and say, oh, I need to get, you know, these outfits because my kid has a play date or he's going to go to school every day. I got to make sure he looks different. I got to make sure that she has something special to wear uh, when she's invited to a sleepover. All these things didn't really happen during the pandemic. So I think a lot of parents just said, you know, if there's one thing I can hold back on is just clothing. And, and we saw this with a lot of companies, but I think especially with children, since they outgrow them so quickly, you're not making an investment in something that they can wear five, 10 years from now for a lot of the young kids. So I think uh, Carter's was just uh, in the wrong place at the wrong time, but it was already at the wrong place at the wrong time before the pandemic. Well said. And I'm sorry to say this stock, which is up 30, 13%. So we are pointing out, yeah, it, it's actually made money over the last few years. It's just really underperformed. It's joined by one other in this five stock sampler that also similarly has dramatically underperformed. IPG Photonics, completely different kind of a business, cold labor, lasers, fiber lasers, but IPG Photonics up 17% over the last three years. But that again, still about 50 percentage points or so rounding behind the market averages. Horse of a different color here, Rick, but what's been up with IPG Photonics over the past three years? Yeah, with, with IPG Photonics, and again, it's not a household name, obviously. I mean, this company makes a, a, a fiber lasers, amplifiers, laser systems, a lot of industrial stuff that's used for uh, medical applications, uh, telecommunications, uh, materials processing. So it's a lot of stuff like a lot of this heavy industrial equipment that's used to make things uh, and make other things go. And what really hurt IPG Photonics was actually a lot of uh, the weakness, just the, not just the supply chain breakdown all over, but in China, uh, when there was a slowdown there in manufacturing, because they are very big with these material cutting applications. Uh, they have like basically half of the welding market uh, as far as equipment to, to help with welding. Uh, so all these things, once production slowed down uh, during the COVID-19 crisis, and especially uh, with tensions between the U.S. and China, even though IPG Photonics, they have factories everywhere. They have presences all over the world. Uh, it did, When China slowed down, a big part of their business actually took a hit. So uh, that is why the stock was able to be, rise over the next three years, but definitely lose the market uh, just because of a, just a rough climate globally, particularly in the world's most populous nation. Well, and thank you for that. And what a fascinating time it has been and to see what has won and what has lost. And a lot of this was simply unpredictable. But I think part of what we do as Rule Breaker Investors is we're looking at great founders. We're looking at companies that have innovative solutions that the world needs. And we're never quite sure which one's going to win when and which ones are going to lose. Otherwise, we never bought those in the first place. But, you know, this is a company that unfortunately lost its founder uh, in just the last few months, Valentin Gaponsev, the Russian-American immigrant, just a great story. One of my favorite Russians, Gaponsev, with a net worth of $2.3 billion, largely tied up in his IPG Photonic stock company he founded decades ago, unfortunately died in October of last year. But this is a stock like a lot of these we've talked about this week. We've owned it for a long time, recommended it actively all the way through, and we're going to keep doing that with IPG Photonics. So these two stocks, Rick, kind of put this five-stock sampler in a hole, both about 50 percentage points behind the market. Let's now go to the winner in this five-stock sampler, the number one performer, Mercado Libre, ticker symbol M-E-L-I, also shrouded in mystery with these other four. Good news, Mercado Libre is up from $328 a share three years ago. It closed a few weeks ago, January 21st, at 1053 ish so up. As I mentioned, 220% waxing the market averages up 150 plus over the market. Rick, you speak Spanish. You pronounce Mercado Libre much better than I do. You know this company better than I do, but it's been one of our favorite longtime rule breakers. In your mind, what's the number one reason over the last three years that Mercado Libre tripled? 
Yeah, I think especially with Mercado Libre, the way that, that what it's been able to do is it has been able to do what every single e-commerce company has wanted to do. Uh, and Amazon has succeeded. But for the most part, this is a company that said, all right, we are the leading Latin America marketplace uh, for goods, for e-commerce. Where can we go next? And so they have Mercado Pago, which is basically like a PayPal uh, or, or uh, equivalent uh, or Square or Venmo, but more more PayPal because it's very for commerce. And Mercado Pago has actually overtaken uh, the Mercado Libre platform. So there are 78.7 million unique active users across Mercado Libre's entire ecosystem. Uh, but this was a company in its latest quarter, 7.3 billion in gross merchandise volume for the for the Mercado Libre, the, the, the actual like, e-commerce, the storefront, but 21 billion, almost three times the volume in Mercado Pago. So it's almost like that mm. one point uh, that, I mean, we followed, you and I followed eBay for a long time when when PayPal overtook eBay. It became the bigger verb uh, in that company mm. uh, and eventually had to be spun off on its own. Uh, so you have Mercado Pago has become so powerful and there are other uh, things. Mercado, every time Mercado Libre slaps their name Mercado, which is Spanish for market, I'll give you that introductory <laughs> Spanish lesson there. Uh, Mercado Libre is obviously free market but yeah so they go mercado envios which is like like the, it's their fulfillment they shipping stuff uh mercado credito they have a credit department now uh mercado fondo which is now like an asset management company so they're doing so many things now that they are basically the name the brand in fintech uh when it comes to latin america and disability to be able to grow beyond they would have been fine with just the marketplace but the fact that they were able to expand into all these logical areas uh to expand basically spread their wings really set them apart from uh, most of the companies that have failed. Well, and as good as this stock has been, and we're just looking at the three-year run, this is another one that's well down from recent highs. So Rick Mercado Libre actually touched 2,000 stock over 2,000 as its 52-week high, presently trading at 1,053. So at a market cap of $50 billion, just about even, I continue to love the future of that whole area of the world and Mercado Libre's leadership in so many contexts, helping lift up and serve Latin America. So I'm just, are, are you as excited about this stock here in 2022 as we were in 2012? I, I definitely am. Uh, and, and again, this is something that a company that, uh, it's not just because the stock is, is cheaper now than it was several months ago, because that's not the right reason to buy the stock. This is a company that will continue to dominate. You're talking about the CEO, Marcos Galperin, uh, who basically was like a 1999, a Stanford student, you know, so I mean, basically, you know, watching this whole dot com, you know, revolution before the bubble popped and basically said, all right, I want to um, I could do this in my country. I can do this in South America. I can do this through Latin America. And uh, boom, Mercado Libre was born and they quickly scaled up within a few years. eBay was buying 20 percent of the company. Uh, they had a lot of big investors on board. Uh, so clearly, you know, a, a well-educated uh, person that saw something early. Um, like so many people we know back in the early night, late 1990s, uh, hopping on this trend uh, and able to make it work. So just ju just a definitely dynamic company. But I think the future is still very bright for Mercado Libre. Uh, you know, all the fears that we've always said, oh, there's like geopolitical risks. There is inflationary risks because of the of the inflation in, in, through Latin America that's been rampant for basically decades. All that Mercado Libre has been able to climb that wall of worry. Uh, and it's just an amazing company. True dad. And, you know, looking at this company on its own, this company has made this five-stock sampler a winner. I'll be giving the final accounting in just a few minutes. But since, Rick, this is the last time we're talking about five stocks shrouded in mystery, we should speak to the other two, the also-rans. One of them beat the market, the other lost. Let's go with the lost one first. Planet Fitness up 45% the last three years, but that's 21 percentage points behind the market. What's your take these days on Planet Fitness? So, I mean, I, I was a big fan of Planet Fitness, and this is the kind of stock, again, I mean, if you look at the stock chart, it, it's, it's almost like doing like a fitness rep because the stock uh, was down, it was, <laughs> it was hit $23.77 in March 2020 when so many of our stocks bottomed out, um, and now it's almost quadrupled at this point since then. Uh, but this was obviously a company that, again, we were talking about CEOs, about these top-of-the-line CEOs at these companies at IPG, at, 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 at Mercado Libre, um, uh, and and. But then with, with Planet Fitness specifically, it had one of my best origin CEO stories, CEO origin stories. And I know I shared it on the podcast three years ago, but I'll do this pretty quickly. Uh, Chris Rondo, um, he was a college student in Dover, New Hampshire, population 30,000. And he was a real fitness buff. Uh, if you've seen him, he's very buff. I mean, he, he works out, obviously. Uh, and it, it's 
he he was just like basically one really good gym in town. So he signed up and said, okay, I'll work the, I'll work the front desk. I'll work the front desk. If you can, you know, let me, you know, work the equipment and stuff like that. And these, the, the comp- gym is not going anywhere. It's about to go under these two brothers come in, they buy it. And they have this complete idea about changing everything around. They want to replace uh, the, get rid of the daycare center, get rid of the heavy weights uh, because there's just a lot of grunting, a lot of heavy equipment hitting the ground. They got rid of fitness classes, which was very controversial at the time. Wow. Now, they did all these things and the place thrived. They dropped the price down to like $10, $9.99. Uh, and all it was was basically just a bunch of, you know, workout gear, a bunch of, uh, you know, uh, aerobic gear, uh, you know, treadmills, bikes, uh, and, and lightweights. And it took off, obviously. And Chris Rondeau, who was working the front desk, eventually becomes a club manager, eventually becomes a regional uh, manager, and then VP. And then in 2013, 20 years after he was checking IDs at the door of the very first Planet Fitness, becomes a CEO. So uh, you can really come from the most humble of origins and be CEO. And obviously, the stock's done really well over time. The company continues to grow. Uh, I know I've rambled too much on Planet Fitness, but it's yeah, it's definitely a very interesting stock, especially now. Uh, w- w- now that we can go to gyms again, uh, uh, which which is something that we couldn't do two years ago, uh, which is why the stock was as low as it was uh, back in March of 2020. Gotta love the Horatio Alger stories, which continue to run. I would say there are more rags to riches, amazing stories of people from modest means coming to become very successful business people. I think that happens more today than it did in the 19th century, which checking Wikipedia right now was when novelist Horatio Alger wrote a lot of his so-called Horatio Alger stories, Rags Derish's stories, impoverished boys becoming Superman. And there was some wish fulfillment for his readers back in the 19th century, but I see this every day these days, and I love that about America. And I'm delighted to note, after your storytelling, Rick, that that's been true for Planet Fitness as well. But it wasn't enough to propel the stock to a market beat. It's running 45 percentage points, so about 20 behind the market. Let's talk about the last one, because in some ways, this is the most interesting of the five in the sampler, but for a really unusual reason. So, Rick, these stocks were picked on January 23rd of 2019, and within just days, in fact, less than two weeks after the podcast aired, Ellie May, ticker symbol E-L-L-I, is all of a sudden popping 9.5% that day. And why? Because the story is it's going to be bought out. And indeed, Ellie May was. You can tell the story better than I will, but I'll just point out, stock basically went from 70 to 99 when we closed it out. So it was up 41%. The market at the time was up 10%. And Ellie May was off the market. So we froze its numbers here in this five-stock sampler, we've talked about this each year since, but just amazing to think that within two weeks of picking a stock, this sometimes happens in real life, doesn't it, Rick? In portfolios, sometimes your companies get bought out, and that's what happened to Ellie May. Yeah, and I think especially with, with the way you would like to approach these disruptive growth companies, they are going to be acquisition targets. Uh, they may not always be available for sale, but uh, it does not surprise me when, when, when one of your stocks gets uh, acquired because – they are something that someone thinks is important to them, and it's disrupting their business or can make their business better. Uh, with with Ellie Mae, uh, they were really basically reinventing the game with how mortgage lending was done with enterprise software solutions to make things uh, process more efficiently. So it did not surprise me when they were bought out. It was private equity firm Thomas Bravo uh, paid about $3.7 billion to deal with worth, uh, $99 a share. Deal was announced in February. It closed in April. So within three months, uh, you had locked in this 41% gain on the sampler scorecard in just three months. That's great money if you can take it. The only downside to this, and there is a bittersweet, and and I I assure you it's more bitter than sweet ending to this, is that a year and a half later, Thomas Bravo went on to sell Ellie Mae to Intercontinental Exchange, ticker symbol ICE, company we know, for $11 billion. So almost tripled their money by basically flipping this, 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 this amazing company that would have wow. been so much better on, the, on our scorecard, on the sampler scorecard, uh, if, if it would have actually just said, just let it be, uh, and then let Intercontinental Exchange buy it directly from the tap, uh, uh, it would have paid more. So yeah, that, you know, great job on the, on the private equity firm, uh, Thomas Bravo, for doing that. But uh, you know, a sad ending for us and what could have been a much larger gain. Yeah, bravo to them. It is exciting when you find out that your stock's getting bought out and it shoots up. It's Generally, stocks are bought at premiums by their acquiring companies. And so the little fish that, that get grabbed, like Ellie Mae, they're exciting to quote that day and see. I had completely missed the, the latter part of that story, though, Rick, to think that the stock tripled 
just in a couple of years from there, yeah, we really did miss out on some great gains. Uh, a friend to the mortgage uh, lending industry, Ellie May, helping out mortgage brokers run their business through their platform. It's one of those companies that had its own platform, kind of like Etsy has its own platform. Ellie May had, had stood one up itself and obviously is a very relevant company today, even though it's much more opaque to most of us. Well, anyway, for this five-stock sampler, it was the last of the five stocks shrouded in mystery. And Rick, do you remember, do you want to say why these are five stocks shrouded in mystery? Um, if I remember correctly, it was something about possibly like these were like bear market stocks, like to feed a bear uh, early and just repeated them again um, because he felt inspired to do so. That was the mystery, and I'm glad that you remember. This is a long time ago, so you certainly weren't required to remember this. I had to double-check it myself. But the third five-stock sampler I ever picked was five stocks to feed the bear in February of 2016. And they had a great run over those three years. And I decided, since I had to pick a new five-stock sampler right as that old one ended, I decided, you know, why not just repeat them again and make kind of an important point about investing, which is we loved them three years ago. They did great. We love them today. Let's buy them again, recommend them again. And they have done great. So very happy to say that the mystery part of five stocks shrouded in mystery, because otherwise what would unite Carter's with IPG photonics, Ellie May, planet fitness and Mercado Libre. There are no themes that really make sense for those. Well, it's because we took a previous group that were picked in a kind of a bear market circumstances, stocks that we liked through a hard market in 2016, and we just persisted them and kept holding them. Of course, all of these companies, like the ones we've talked about this week, all of these generally remain active recommendations. We like them here in 2022, just like Rick, we liked them in 2019 and in 2016. So the final accounting then for five stocks shrouded in mystery, they averaged a 67.1% gain as a group versus the market's 55%, 55.0, matched against the S&P 500. So this basket beats the market by 12 percentage points over three years. Again, they'd already done really well. The three years before, they were up more than 100% as a basket. Well, they just added another 67% on top of that as five stocks shrouded in mystery disappeared in January of 2022, sent off with the music, Rick Engdahl, our Fulhalla tribute to five stocks shrouded in mystery, another market beater. I want to thank again all of my guest stars this week, Samit Deo, Asit Sharma, and my friend Rick Munares. All right. Well, that's it for Rule Breaker Investing this week. Three five-stock samplers covered. A reminder, next week, it's going to be a special podcast. Chris Hill joining me for the year the market skyrocketed. Can't wait for that. Have a great week. Fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.